0: Well, good morning, Church. Thank you, Gareth. If you have your Bibles, can you uh, please turn to Daniel chapter 1? We're going to be doing a bit of an overview throughout the whole book of Daniel, but we're going to start with the first verse of the first chapter. And if you are joining us for the first time, if you're a visitor with us, you just kind of clicked on a link and ended up here, then we just want to say uh, welcome, and we're so glad that you chose to spend some of your time with us. We are in a series called Babylon. And the tagline that we have for this series is, living as devoted exiles in this age. And what we're doing this week, as well as the next couple of weeks, is we are looking at the life of real people who are in the Bible, who went through uh, an exile period. We want to learn from them, what did they do? How did they sustain their faith and be fruitful in the land that they were in? And we want to take those lessons and apply uh, apply them to us now. And so I'm going to read from Daniel chapter one, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the story of this hero of the faith together. You should be in Daniel chapter one now, and I'm going to start reading from verse one. We're reading from verse one to verse seven. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Aspenath, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that they drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to attend to the king. Among them from Judah was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel. Shadrach to Mishael, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. We join Daniel at the beginning of his story in the moment of exile. Previously, we've spent a couple of sermons looking at Jeremiah 29, a prophecy foretelling that this would happen. But, but now we're in the moment itself. We're in the moment when they are being marched in chains through Judah, through the land that has been destroyed, their homeland, the, the land where their families are. And they are being marched through the big military gates of the largest and most powerful city that the world had ever known at this point. And it's important not to read words in a book, but to also experience and, and, and try and get at how they felt in this moment. You see, how they felt in this moment would have been a deep sense of sorrow and loss. They would have been filled with emptiness. They would have been filled with all that had happened previously. Edward Said is a a philosopher who said of exile that, that the state of exile in our hearts is a state of loss and a state of the absence of belonging. And these guys have been taken from where they belong. And everything that that tells them who they are is about to be stripped away. What we've read in these first few verses is not just a story from a few fictional characters. These are real people who are trying to process their real loss. And as they're processing their loss, they come under siege, they come under attack. They have stepped into a hostile environment, into enemy territory. And as they are there, there are attacks that they are facing from the culture and the worldview and the religion that they are surrounded by. I don't know if you will remember from the last couple of weeks, but we have been looking at four major dangers that the people of God face when they are in a land that is not their own. There's a danger of conforming to the culture and the worldviews, the the ideology, the practices of those who are around you. There's the danger of compromising to those cultures. There's a danger of being combative and wanting to fight and disagree your way against the culture. And then fourth and final, there's a danger of retreating from, isolating from the culture, staying in our bomb shelters, our bunkers, hiding it out, hoping that this wave of exile will pass. These four dangers that these four guys face are dangers that that we face in a culture that is not our own today. Uh, We read in Philippians 3 that we belong, our citizenship is found in heaven. And so we're living in the in-between age, yes, in the kingdom of God, but also part of something that that is yet to be. We're, We're citizens of heaven now, and we can face those dangers as well. Let's look at a couple of the attacks these guys face as they are in Babylon. The first thing that we see, verses 2 and verse 3, is that uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has taken the the goods, the holy, sacred things that were belonging to the Lord in the temple of Jerusalem, and he's taken them, he's looted the temple, taken them and put them in the temple of his God, their God's it's a a physical sign of a change of allegiance that all of israel and judah are are currently going through not only is the temple destroyed and looted but, but we find that these four guys and the others who are who are marched off to babylon not only have they seen the desecration of their own temple they've also been under attack to uh, assimilate and to accept the culture of Babylon, an an evil culture, an evil spirit. We find that because in verse 5 and verse 6, it talks about these guys basically going to university. They went to the University of Babylon, studied a a three-year degree in their worldviews. We know that it's the Chaldean language and literature, but what we find out later on in this book is that that includes divination, it includes magicians, it includes cult practices, it involves idol worship, it involves all of these things that were so detestable and hated in the land of Israel, but now they are forced to have to learn that too. It is a form of brainwashing on these guys. The chapter of Daniel 1 is a chapter that tells a story. It tells a story that begins in verse 5, because we read there that these guys have to change diets and change what they consume. The the king has given them food and wine that he has provided from his palace. And the problem with that, the reason why this is another attack on these guys is that jewish people had a clear um clear law from god himself about what was clean and was what was not clean and in the moment these guys would feel the weight and the pressure of either conforming to babylon for their own well-being or standing up to uh, standing up for their faith and their belief in god these guys make a radical step of faithfulness because they basically become voluntary vegans. They have to basically take a diet full of vegetables and nuts. And kids, that does sound terrible, doesn't it? For breakfast, for lunch and for supper, you get broccoli now. You get green beans now. You get nuts from the tree. Right, and that is a worse nightmare for any child. It, but it wouldn't have been easy for these guys too. We got to we got to remember, even though I'm making a joke of it, how, how serious this moment is. They they take a radical step of faithfulness by becoming well, you know, voluntary vegans who who would do really well in Cape Town right now. Hey, another attack that these four guys faced in in this time is. Uh, gonna make all of the men in our homes and our rooms wince so here's a wince warning straight away now because do you remember who these guys were under who was in charge of the judah um, exiles it was the chief eunuch and it was common practice in the imperial court under the chief eunuch to well to join the chief eunuch in his eunuchness. I'm trying to keep this PG for the kids. Uh, This is a worrying, devastating, hard to swallow blow for these four guys, right? Uh, This is a a difficult moment where they have to figure out what to do in the situation. You see, for these guys to, to be castrated and to become eunuchs, as would be acceptable to the Babylonian imperial court, is actually more serious than just a small little wince for us. You see, for these guys, it means that they previously were circumcised, but now that physical sign, which is a demonstration, a symbol of their devotion and allegiance to the God of Israel, well, that has been removed now. We have the whole Bible, up until this moment of Daniel, to tell us, how important the the circumcision uh, tradition was for Jewish people. But but now it has literally been, well, cut away. And it's another sign of the the cutting away of, of the allegiance and ties and relationship with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the final attack that we see placed on these guys in enemy territory is that their names are changed in verse 6 we're introduced to them by their israelite names but now in verse 7 we introduce them in their babylonian names and this is where reading the bible in community really helps this is where our multicultural dynamic as a church it helps because for me, I probably would have skipped over this part of the Bible or this verse. Because in, in my cultural upbringing, names are, are kind of like tags or, or labels. Uh, just a, a way of being able to, to say someone's name quickly like that. Uh, but for there are those of us in different cultures who, who will understand the significance of names. You see, the name that is placed on these guys is a name that is given as a part of who they are. Part of their identity and it represents some of the hopes that this child would grow up to become. For example, Daniel. The name Daniel means God is my judge, and yet his name changes to Belshazzar, and Belshazzar means prince or princess of Bel. Now, Bel was one of the Babylonian gods, and so the name change represents all of the attacks that they are facing. There is a change of allegiance. There is a a threat and a pressure to forget the God of Israel and to instead swear allegiance to and change your identity to become Babylonian. This is the threat that these guys face. And I wonder for these guys, as they are entering into Babylon and as they are experiencing attacks from all sides on, on their identity and on their faith, I think it could have been very possible for some doubts to begin to creep in, don't you? And I wonder if some of the doubts that might have crept into them in, their, in these moments might not be too dissimilar to maybe some of the doubts that we have experienced in, in the last couple of months. Doesn't it feel sometimes like our king and his kingdom seem to be a little bit further away than before? Perhaps that's one of the doubts that has just crept into your mind as you have tried faithfully to sustain and maintain faith and trust in Jesus. You see, I want to ask you the question, a question not just based on these guys' story, but based on our story of exile. Are you continually knowing the nearness and the closeness of God and all of his promises? Or are you perhaps... Just feeling like slowly you are are drifting away from some of the promises that used to be so tight. Perhaps this pandemic has thrown into question where your source of confidence and stability is. If you are watching this and you haven't yet decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ, then I want to ask you, haven't you felt, just like all of us, that the whole world has been shaking in the last couple of months? haven't you felt like everything that you felt you could put your trust in your confidence in haven't they seemed so insecure so uncertain so unstable in these times if that has been your experience i want you to stick with us over the next few minutes we're going to read a couple of stories of daniel how he responded as daniel's world was shaken apart and i want and my hope is for you to be able to find in Jesus Christ through the story of Daniel where your source of security and stability and certainty can come from. That you can go to the rock of ages and you can find in a world that is so shaken, such an unshakable trust in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The question that we should ask understanding Daniel's exile as a sense of loss and emptiness and a source of multiple threats and attacks from all angles of the Babylonian imperial court, the question that we should ask is how did Daniel do it? How is there a book in the Bible full of 12 chapters of a man who is so faithful and fruitful? He's not just faithful as in remaining in the faith and staying strong, He's fruitful, he's successful, he's effective. He manages to bring a little bit of the kingdom of God into the very center of the kingdom of Babylon. How did he manage to do it? How did he manage to endure the tax all around him? How did he become empowered, not just to survive, but to thrive? Daniel becomes a politician, a government leader with incredible influence over policies. Daniel oversees some of the Babylonian officials. Daniel interprets the dreams of kings. Daniel himself receives visions of The ancient of days of the son of man of the full of kingdoms of the Everlasting kingdom that Jesus is bringing Daniel sees all of these things and the question we should ask is how does he do it? What did he build in his life that enabled him to do all of these things and? the answer From this whole book, as we're going to see, is really simple. Daniel was a man of prayer. Daniel was a man who had learned through the exile, learned through the loss, learned through the attacks, had learned that God himself will use the things in our lives, use the exile experiences to create a humbleness in our hearts, to to see as a wave of exile crosses over, the the self-sufficiency and the self-righteousness of man fade away. Daniel in exile is a man of a humble, surrendered heart. And so his life is not marked by the emptiness of exile. It's instead marked by an openness to the things of God, all of his plans and purposes. And so we're gonna read A couple of stories of Daniel where he shows how central prayer is to his dependency on God and before we do that I want to just give us a a short quote from a a book that I really enjoyed it's called a praying life by Paul Miller and uh, Paul Miller writes that each one of us has an allergic reaction to being dependent on someone or something this dependency is the state of the heart that is most necessary for a praying life. A needy heart is therefore a prayerful heart. Daniel's life, for me, is a wonderful example of Jesus' words hundreds of years later. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it feels like Daniel had learned that lesson. It felt like Daniel even though he hadn't heard those words, had managed to grab a hold of the words through his relationship with God and had shaped his entire life around a prayerful dependence. Let's look at a couple of stories that will help us to see this played out in Daniel's life and how we might be able to incorporate and apply this to our lives on this earth in this moment of exile. And the first quick story we're going to brush over is found in chapter 6. I'm sure you've heard of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel in the lion's den is one of those very famous, uh, one of those famous stories. But, but how did Daniel end up in the den? How did daniel end up having a sleepover with mufasa and scar and aslan and co well we find it in the beginning of our story in chapter six you see the administrators and satraps they hated daniel and trying to keep trying to find a charge against daniel regarding the kingdom but they could know they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and there was no negligence or corruption that was found in him. They said to each other, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. And so the administrators and the Babylonian officials, they go to the king, King Darius this time, and they say, King, for 30 days, you should make a law saying that no one can pray. And if they do pray to anyone or anything other than you, O mighty Babylonian king, then you should execute them. Sounds a little bit similar to another story in the Bible, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit similar to the story of Gethsemane, when there was a faithful man who dared to pray, even though there were crowds of opposition and opposing forces who were out to get him and betray him. This was a trap set For Daniel. And he walks into the trap. Let's see how Daniel responds to this moment. In verse 10, we read, when Daniel learned that this document had been signed, it's in law now, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks towards his God, just as he had done before. Daniel had learned that he could be killed for praying to God. And what does he do? He runs to his room. He looks at Jerusalem, the the, the place that symbolizes all of the promises and faithfulness of God, and he gets on his knees and he prays to God. He says, you can't pray, you'll be killed. And he says, I'm going to pray anyway. And when he prays, it says that he gets on his knees because he's used to it. You see, what we see from this first story is that Daniel had developed a habit of prayer. Daniel had developed the heart muscles to be able to withstand any challenge or threat or attack that he has faced. Why? Because he has learned how to become dependent on God himself. This is a radical and defiant faith, is it not? Daniel literally is in an act of surrender. He's bowing his knees before God. You and I, we can't pray to God in any other posture or form other than in surrender to God. When we pray to God, it is an acknowledgement that he is the God who can do anything. and, And we can't. And therefore, we need to trust and place our confidence in him. That's what we do when we pray. That's what Daniel was doing. And he did it three times a day. He had built a habit of prayer in his life. And it tells us something else. Not only had he built a habit of prayer, but also when life got tough, when challenges emerged, his habit of prayer had made prayer an instinctive reaction to whatever he faced. The first story shows us a habit of prayer. The second story we're going to look at quickly shows us a reaction of prayer, a natural instinct to turn to prayer when life gets tough. And for this, we are going to go back in our Bibles, go back a couple of chapters. We're in chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us how Daniel responds in another threatening, life-changing moment. You see, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar now, the earlier king, the the king of of Daniel chapter 1, he had had a dream. The dream terrified him. And so he said, Under the threat of death, O imperial court, you must interpret this dream for me. And everyone failed. In fact, we read that the Babylonian uh, divination and magicians, they declared that only God can do this. They themselves witnessed to the truthfulness of Israel's God. And Daniel, when he learned that he and his friends, their life was in danger, where did he go? What did he turn to? What was his natural instincts? Well, we'll read it together. In verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. Verse 18, urging them to ask the God of heavens for mercy. Concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision And at night, Daniel praised the God of heavens. How did Daniel respond? What was his instinctive reaction? Well, it wasn't to moan, groan, grumble and complain like so many of us might have. His natural instinct was to say, I know I can't do this myself. I know that I need to turn to God. I know that it is by God alone that he sustains and guides us in all things. See, what prayer does to us is it just reminds us that that we aren't the potter, but we're the clay, and that God is the potter. It reminds us that we need to bow our knee before him. And so Daniel has a habit of prayer, and Daniel has a reaction of prayer, a natural instinct of prayer. And you know what Daniel's doing in these moments? It's like he's taking a knife and he's stabbing the heart of self-sufficiency, it's stabbing the idol of ourselves that we make. Daniel is displaying a self-forgetfulness. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is one that Daniel um, shows here. He's an example of this verse. In Galatians two, the apostle Paul writes, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives through me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live in faith." In the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Daniel shows that, does he not? He shows that Daniel's life is not about Daniel and it's not about his agenda. It's a faithful surrender and openness to the plans of God. And our final story, this final moment where we get to see Daniel's prayer life come and abound for us, and the one that I think for us as Reconciliation Road Church, the one that is going to speak into our moment so clearly, is found later on in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9. And so as we turn to chapter 9, we read that Daniel has been reading the book of Jeremiah which is great for us, isn't it? Because we have been in the book of Jeremiah for two sermons now, and Daniel was reading and carefully trying to discern and study the scriptures. And when he does, he comes across a discovery that suddenly changes the tone of the book of Daniel. He discovers that Jeremiah says that the people of God would be in exile for 70 years, and then he does the maths, he counts it up, and he realizes on his his 5th century BC calculator, the time is nearly up. God's promises are close at hand. And then something really interesting happens. The promise of revival and renewal that Gareth spoke of last week, that we find in the book of Jeremiah, We find that that is birthed in the prayer of a dependent man let's read chapter 9 verse 3 together so i turned my attention to the lord god to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting and ash cloth and ashes don't you hear the lowliness the humility the, the brokenness of Daniel's heart as he prays? Don't you hear the utter dependence that Daniel has on prayer, on his God? It's like you can feel the earnestness, the, the, the radical honesty and authenticity of Daniel's prayer in, in chapter 9. And we read of Daniel not praying like a formulaic prayer, not like he's at a prayer meeting, he's trying to wake up still, he's he's just trying to think about how he can perfectly articulate the right word to the living God in the hope that maybe, just maybe, he might listen and hear and who knows what happens from there. No. Daniel is incredibly confident in God and yet also humble towards God. He doesn't presume that God's gonna do something. But he wants to hold on with all the faith that he can muster that the Lord has worked in him that God would be true to his promises as indeed he would be there is a humble confidence in the earnestness and the dependency of Daniel in this prayer and what is this prayer characterized by what does Daniel 9 tell us well let me read just a couple more verses for you that might just capture the main part of Daniel's prayer in verse 4 We read, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God, the one who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away from your commands and your ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, and your prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and leaders and fathers and all the people of the land. Daniel's prayer is a prayer of repentance. It's a confession that that we, left to ourselves, disqualify ourselves from a relationship with God. We disqualify ourselves from God's kind and gentle touch on our lives. And he openly, unashamedly confesses those things because he knows and trusts and believes in the goodness of God. It's really interesting to note in this moment here that that Daniel's prayer is the spark of revival that is gonna ripple through generations of of Israelites. Tim Keller writes of revival and says there that if you study the church history, there are three key ingredients to church revival. Number one is a return to the gospel of grace. The good news that you are unrighteous in yourself because you have sinned but God came to give you his righteousness to give you a perfect life so that he could take away your sins that you could be forgiven number one to revival is a return to the gospel of grace number two is a return to deep grieved repentance to God an admission of our dependence on him and number three is the recovery of extraordinary prayer. He's not talking about a prayer meeting. No, no, Tinker is talking about what he calls a frontline prayer. The kind of prayer that we see in Daniel. The kind of prayer that is gonna change and shape nations. The kind of earnest, utterly convicted and hopeful prayer that despite of ourselves, God might want to come and redeem and save his people and so we see this in the prayer of daniel from verses 3 through to verse 19 of chapter 9 we find that Daniel returns to a big view of God and a small view of our sin in essence he's saying I know that we have sinned and my people have sinned but I know that you are quick to forgive and I know your promises are true and I know that your kingdom is going to break out and extend and I want to pray earnestly with all of my might that this would happen this isn't a formulaic prayer this is an outpouring of his soul, of his of desperate desires to see God vindicate his own glory. And we find that at the end of the prayer. I'm going to read from verse 17 to the end of the prayer. And we're going to see what Daniel's petition was. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on the desolate sanctuary. For the Lord's sake, listen closely, my God, and hear open your eyes and see the desolations and the city that bears your name we are not presenting our positions to you based on our righteous acts did you get that daniel's saying this is not about our righteousness because we are not righteous so how does he finish that sentence but based on your abundant compassion how incredible is that lord hear Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel is asking for God to care so much about his own glory and his own purposes that he would redeem the people of Israel, take them out of the land of Babylon and start revival in their place. Daniel's prayer has those three ingredients of revival, doesn't it? A gospel of grace, a confession of sin, an extraordinary prayer. And friends, in our day, in our moment of exile, we need to return to those three things. And we need our prayers not to be formulaic, not to be about our maintenance, not just to be about our survival, but to be about the bigness of God. I don't know about you, but I don't have a small God. And so I don't have small dreams of a small church with small impacts. I have a massive God, the the one true God of the Bible. And he causes me to dream big dreams of a big mission, of the greatness of the gospel, going out, touching and saving lives, building his church so that one day we can stand before him, look him in the eyes and say, I asked for everything and everything was possible. Friends, don't you want to join me in that? Don't you want to stand before the living God and say, I saw your greatness and your majesty, and so I believed big dreams of a big church and saw your mission touching the lives of those around me. Friends, Daniel's prayer is a prayer that can see and discern the times. And in that moment of exile, believe that God wants to start a revival in the hearts of his people to extend his kingdom. Doesn't it remind you so much of the beginning of Acts? just as we finish our time together i want to take you through a couple of verses in the book of acts because it's so similar and it's so instructive for us today i don't know about you but i want to be a part of the fellowship of the unashamed i want to be part of the people who dream big dreams and see big audacious prayers answered in the name of jesus in acts one in the early church we read of the people of god which is just 120 people devoting themselves to prayer and then in acts 2 verse 2 they are praying when suddenly there's a sound of a mighty rushing wind and suddenly there's what appears to be like fires tongues of fire on top of their heads the holy spirit is being poured out through their earnest desperate urgent prayers to the god who keeps all his promises in Acts 2 verse 42 the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to pray more in verse 42 we read that they are redevoting themselves to prayer again in Acts 4 verse 24 we read of the people of God again in an upper room lifting their voices together to him and the result Acts 4, verse 31, the whole building began to shake as the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. You see, people who are committed not to small prayers, not to formulaic prayers, but to earnest, heartfelt, passionate, desperate prayers, those guys, with an extraordinary faith in an extraordinary God, see a move of the Holy Spirit that touches their lives. And friends, in our moment of exile, That is my desperate plea for us as a church, that we wouldn't dream small. We would pray big. We would pray loud. We would pray full of faith. We would throw away the fear and the uncertainty of the world around us. We would trust that God is true to his promises. And we pray knowing that there's gonna be a day when we will all bow the knee and confess his name together. I want you to do something with me in this moment in online services when someone is preaching to a screen and I'm appearing on a screen in your home it can be easy to sit down or just kind of listen to a prayer I want you to be active and involved with me because this is a moment when God can use us to not just join with him in a prayer but to join with him in all of his plans for us as a family of faith and so what I would like you to do is I would like you to stand I would like you, wherever you are in your home, maybe you're sitting on the couch or you're listening to this online, I want you to stand with me and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in our hearts, that we would believe big dreams, that we would learn from the story of Daniel to center our lives on prayer and to believe that God has a magnificent purpose for us. So I'm going to pray and hopefully you're standing now, I want you you close your eyes, I find it helpful to just put my hands out like this, like I'm engaging and receiving from God. Oh, holy God, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you wouldn't give us small dreams of a small church, but you would give us a picture of the bigness of God, God on his throne, God in charge, God ruling and reigning, God with all authority, We pray that you would give us a view of you that would cause and stir up inside of us audacious, desperate, dependent prayers of faith. Father, we pray that you would sustain us, you would keep us in the palm of your hands, but even more than that, we pray that you would use us as empty vessels to bring about a revival in our land. Lord, we cry out for our people, we cry out for our country, we cry out for our province. Would there be revival? Would we be so filled with the Holy Spirit we would be compelled to tell people about Jesus? We would be con- t- compelled to tell people that their lives don't have to lead to death. They can lead to revived, eternal life in him. Holy Spirit, pour out your power, pour out your love. We pray, Lord, that we would receive from the Holy Spirit all that we need. And we pray in your mighty name that we would remain faithful and fruitful as we live in exile. For the mighty name and glory of God, for his kingdom advance in our province, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.